Tonight, it is my privilege to kick off a five-week series, a journey, if you will, through the book of Colossians. And I appreciate Pastor John letting me have this opportunity uh, to speak and just to kind of share what God has, has placed in my heart. Um, the book of Colossians is four chapters, and so to cram four chapters into five weeks, we have to pick and choose uh, what we settle in on, and so hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what God wants us to see and, and uncover what He wants us to uncover. Uh, hopefully, you are now in Colossians. If you've not yet done so, please turn there and join me there. Colossians chapter 1, and I've, I've handed out a little outline for you. Uh, hopefully, I... I have it big enough to where you can fill the blanks in. I know that map is really difficult to see. You've got to have x-ray vision and maybe a magnifying glass to see what's going on with that map. But just to give you kind of perspective, and then maybe you could just fold it in half and stick it in your Bible, and before uh, long you'll have the whole book of Colossians there. Uh, but just a quick overview, chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Colossians essentially are what Jesus Christ has done for us. The last two chapters of the book is essentially what Jesus Christ will and can do through us when we submit to Him and His leadership. But I've given you an overview of the next five weeks just to kind of show you where we're headed. Tonight is the introduction. We're going to spend all of our time in the first 14 verses and then so on and so forth. The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Colossae. And the occasion for the writing was Paul had never been to Colossae. This was not a church that... Paul had planted himself, but he heard about this church through the church's pastor, whose name was Epaphras. We're going to talk more about him in a little bit. You see, he pastored this church, and before long in the church's lifespan, some uh, delusional doctrine started to creep in and corrupt uh, the teaching of the gospel. And so Epaphras was kind of in over his head. He was really troubled by this. And so he went to visit the apostle Paul, gave him a report of the church, and so Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes a letter to the church in Colossae. Um, Colossians is one of four letters that Paul wrote during his first imprisonment in Rome. Uh, these four letters are often grouped together and called the prison epistles. So epistle is just a letter, prison epistles. And so Colossians, one of the four, pop quiz, can anyone name the other three prison epistles? Anybody? Shout them out. Philippians, okay, that's two. Anybody else? Nope, nope. Okay, which one? Second, Timothy. Brian, you get a bonus point tonight. Because Tim, Second Timothy was written by Paul while he was in prison in Rome, but it was during his second imprisonment, just before he died, to his protege, Timothy, and that's not included in the four. So you get a bonus point. That's actually the fifth prison epistle. But there are four that are grouped together because of the time period. And we got Philippians. We have Colossians. Ephesians is another one. And the book of Philemon is another. Okay, Ephesians is kind of a sister book to Colossians. In fact, if you read through Ephesians and then you read through Colossians, you're going to be like, wow, this is deja vu. Because many of the same things are said throughout Ephesians is six chapters. The first three talk about a believer's wealth in Christ, and then the last three chapters talk about the believer's walk in Christ. Philemon was not written to a church. It was written to a man in the church of Colossae. And so Philemon and Colossians really go together, and if we had more time, we'd probably just throw in Philemon. But 
the letter of Colossians was to the church at Colossae. The letter of Philemon was to a man in the church of Colossae. And that whole letter, if you read that, pretty short read, is about a man um, who had a servant named Onesimus. And this servant fled his house, just left, and went to Rome. Well, while he's there, because of God's sovereignty, he bumps into Paul, the apostle. He trusts in Jesus Christ as his Savior. And Paul implores him to go back and make things right with Philemon. And so Paul writes a personal letter to Philemon saying, Would you please now receive this man who ran from you, but who is now your brother in Christ. And so if you get a chance, as we go through Colossians, go ahead and read Philemon because it's a, it's a great letter that goes right along with this book. But tonight we're jumping into Colossians, and for the next five weeks, that's where it will be. Um, by the way, Brian, you can pick up a $1,000 gift card from Pastor John. After the service here for that bonus question. Yes, to Walmart. Surprise. <laughs> That's right. All right. It just became a $2,000 gift card for you, my friend. <clears throat> so tonight, uh, we're going to look at the first 14 verses. Let's go ahead and read the text, and then we'll jump into our outline. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth, of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to, to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to walk through this first chapter, these first 14 verses of chapter 1, and hopefully give you kind of a context for what will be uh, the rest of the book. Again, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae to counteract subversive doctrine that has crept in and corrupted the gospel message. You'll notice that I've entitled the whole series of our journey through Colossians, just Jesus, because there were a variety of false teachings that said salvation, the way to please God and be right with God, is not just Jesus. It's Jesus plus something. Jesus plus something. And so we're going to look at the doctrinal delusion in week three, but I I want you to understand where Paul's coming from and what he's about to do as we jump in. Uh, to the book. So let's first of all take a look at the personalities. So if you take notes, that's your first blank, the personalities found here in Colossians. The first, letter A, is Paul, the apostle. Now an apostle 
was someone personally commissioned by the risen Christ himself. Let me say that again, because we see a lot of church signs around town, here in the Metroplex, which have the church name, and then instead of pastor or so-and-so, it's apostle so-and-so. Is that true? Well, an apostle is someone who is personally, face-to-face, commissioned by the risen Christ for ministry, whose ministry then is verified by miraculous signs and wonders. Okay, so there's a, there's a litmus test if you call yourself an apostle, and I don't think too many people pass that test. Okay? But Paul was an apostle. And Paul was commissioned by Jesus on the road to Damascus to take the gospel to the Gentiles. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 9. Unlike the 12 disciples, who, by the way, are also apostles, okay, because were they, were they not commissioned face-to-face by the risen Christ himself? Okay, right? And we know there was 11 because Judas betrayed. But then in Acts, they, they, uh, God chose another disciple there. And so then there's 12. So there's 12 disciples, also called apostles. But unlike these 12, Paul did not experience the earthly ministry of Jesus described in the Gospels. He wasn't there with the 12. In fact, he was a vicious enemy of the church who wreaked havoc on anybody that claimed the name of Jesus. And so interestingly enough, the man who at one point in his life did the most damage to the church of Jesus Christ, after his conversion, you could arguably say that no one did the church more good than the Apostle Paul. A complete turnaround, a complete change in his life. His three missionary journeys carried the gospel and planted churches in much of the known world of his day. His imprisonment in Rome near the end of his life and those he interacted with there carried his message of the gospel to the rest of the known world. Paul's ministry, in fact, is reflected in the faces I'm looking at tonight. He had a ministry to the Gentiles. How many Gentiles in the house? Raise your hand, okay? I'm thankful for Paul's ministry, aren't you? The Apostle Paul. In fact, uh, in March, I'm pretty excited because there's a movie coming out. Have you seen the previews yet? Paul, the Apostle of Christ. Pretty excited about it. Jim Caviezel, the guy who played uh, Jesus in the Passion of the Christ, he's playing Dr. Luke, who was with Paul near the end of his life, and it's from that account. And so anyway, I'm pretty, I'm pretty pumped about that. It's coming out in March. Uh, but later on in this letter, Paul, uh, the purpose of this letter, again, was to sharply refute the false doctrine that had crept into the church. And so early on, he establishes his authority as an apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So that's the first personality there that's prominent. But then we also see Timothy. He says, and Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy uh, was Paul's apprentice. So we see Paul the apostle, and then we see Timothy the apprentice. He was a young man who came to faith in Christ under Paul's ministry. In fact, Paul called Timothy his beloved son in the faith. That's from 2 Timothy 2.2. They had a special relationship. Paul uh, discipled Timothy and prepared him for the pastorate. He let Timothy walk with him and minister with him and serve with him in preparation uh, for the pastorate. In fact, Timothy would, would go on to pastor the church at Ephesus. And so he was discipled at Paul's elbow. And in fact, the, the Holy Spirit inspired two books to Timothy through Paul. 
meant to instruct him. You can read First and Second Timothy there. And you may wonder, well, what does Timothy have to do with the book of Colossians? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, but what a gift for Paul to include Timothy uh, in a book that would live on forever. Uh, I'm going to tell you why Timothy, I think, is, is there. Uh, there obviously is a reason, but John Phillips, a Welsh commentator, describes Timothy's inclusion in the letter this way. He says this, Paul was putting Timothy's name to a letter that would outlast all of the suns and stars of space. He was signing a God-breathed epistle, one of only 21 such letters ever to be written. Here was a writing destined to become part of the living word of the living God, an instrument to bring light and life to millions of people for thousands of years, a document to outlast empires and a letter that would be absorbed that would be of absorbing interest to God's people in all of the ages yet to be. And what does Paul do? He summons this young convert and colleague, his hands, he hands him his pen, and he says, Here you are, Timothy, sign here. Now your name is linked with mine forever, and wherever this letter will be read. Isn't that great? What a mentor Paul was to young Timothy, to even just include him. And when I, when I started studying through this, I couldn't help but think of the countless men in my life who had mentored me, who had been a father of the faith to me, my own, starting with my own dad, who was a pastor. And he sensed God calling me uh, to, to preach early on, and he said, Dave, I trust you to, to lead our, our teens. I want you to teach the youth. And I trust you to lead worship at the, at the age of 17. Who would do that? My dad was a little crazy. But uh, he, he, he entrusted me with that. And, and that was, a, that was confirming the, God's call on my life. And then I went to Liberty University where I surrendered to God's call on my life. And there were numerous men that, that just impacted me uh, in my walk with Christ and, and helped equip me and make me more competent to serve the Lord ministry. Matt Wilmington, uh, Jerry Falwell, David Adams, all these men feeding into my life, confronting me, correcting me developing me, investing in me, and then uh, serving as a youth pastor minister of music in Jacksonville, Florida with Dan Pride, and then Talladega, Alabama with Dr. Eddie Cole, and then planning a church outside of Chicago with Kevin Garber, and then coming here to Fort Worth almost 14, 13 years ago, I don't know what it is, 13 years or so, and Mike Haley inviting me in, and, and coaching me along, and Robert Singley, and, and now Pastor John, and, and essentially these men were saying, hey Dave, Come over here for a sec. Why don't you sign this letter? Why, come here. Why don't, why don't you make this call? Why don't you make this visit? Why don't, why don't you come with me? And, and why don't you do this, this counseling appointment? Why don't you teach this lesson? Why don't you preach this series? And all the while, they're, they're, calling, they're, they're calling to me, and they're calling me to rise up in my calling and confirming it and helping me become more competent. What a gift. What a blessing that is. And I know as I was going through my list, you were going through your list and thinking back to all the people God has used in your life as well. I think that Timothy was included because Paul knew he wouldn't be around forever. And here's this young preacher that's going to pastor the church at Ephesus, only 100 miles away from Colossae, the most influential church in that region. And that one day Colossae may, may need some more help as a church and that they could call upon Timothy, if Paul was no longer around. Paul was validating Timothy's future ministry. Well, the next personality we see here at the beginning of the book is Epaphras. He's, his name is in verse 7. And Epaphras is the approved 
pastor. So we have Paul the apostle, Timothy the apprentice, Epaphras the approved pastor. He was not an apostle. As far as we know, he wasn't even being mentored by one. He was simply a man who had come to faith in Christ, probably during one of Paul's missionary's journeys through Ephesus, who went back to his home, Colossae, began sharing his faith, gathered a group of believers, and God called him to pastor church. This is a whole new chapter in church planning, church ministry. Why? Because here's a non-apostle, non-Jew, who gets saved and called to start a church and pastor in a city where Paul has never been. And not only is it working, the Holy Spirit recognizes the church. So much so, he has the Apostle Paul write a letter. That is so encouraging to me. Because last I checked, Hallmark Baptist Church was planted by a non-apostle, non-Jew. And we preach Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit acknowledges our church just as he acknowledges the church in Colossae. This tells me there are no insignificant places. There are no insignificant people. In fact, the only notoriety that belongs to any person or place is what they've done with Jesus Christ. The only reason we know of Colossae at all today is because a man started a church there and the Holy Spirit wrote a letter. That's the only reason we're talking about Colossae today. And speaking of which, now let's look at the place. Verse 2. Paul says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. So there's two places we're going to look at. The first is in Colossae. It's their physical place. And if you're looking on how to spell Colossae, it's right there for you in the text. C-O-L-O-S-S-E. I challenged Ben to write a song about Colossians this afternoon, and he let me down. So didn't happen, but I'm still holding out hope four weeks, right? Challenge the new worship time. Anyway, so the physical place Colossae. Now, if you want to look at the map and give it a shot, break out your reading glasses, pull out your magnifying glass, try to find Colossae on the small map I put there. But Colossae was a small market town. It was 100 miles east of Ephesus, uh, which is a modern-day Turkey. It was situated on the bank of, of the Wolf River in a valley that was overshadowed by Mount Cadmus. The Turks called that mountain the father of mountains, so it's a pretty big mountain. Nice valley. Two other larger cities, Laodicea. Does that ring a bell with you? Laodicea and Aeropolis were also in the same valley. They were about a day's journey away. And the main road that went from Ephesus to the Euphrates passed through Colossae. So at one time, it was an important city. In fact, the armies of Xerxes and Cyrus marched through the city. So it had known its greatness. But by the time Paul writes the letter to the church at Colossae, it's about A.D. 60, and they're kind of a, just a small market town, kind of a forgotten off the road town, kind of like those towns that were bypassed, you know, that Route 66 once passed through, but then uh, here comes the interstate. So they, they kind of lose importance. In fact, a couple years after uh, they received this letter from Paul, uh, the whole city is destroyed by an earthquake. But again, the size of the town and its location, its physical place is encouraging to me because, again, no place is insignificant. No person is insignificant. Uh, because of what they do with Jesus. So that's their physical place. But there's also a spiritual place. He says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. I love that. There's a physical place, a spiritual place. 
And this is one of Paul's favorite expressions, in Christ. In fact, if you look at the sister letter of Ephesians, there are so many in Christ in that first chapter. You just need to read through it. It's amazing when he's talking about the believer's worth. He's talking about our spiritual position in Christ over and over again. So spiritually speaking, the believers in Colossae were in sphere. They were wrapped up in Christ. They were saved, secure, sustained in the Savior. So while they lived and went to school and went to work and went to the market in Colossae, at the same time, they were spiritually in Christ. And the same is true of you today. We are in Fort Worth. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, there's a spiritual location. You are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? I think we forget about that so many times. That we are in Christ. Spiritually speaking, we are safe and secure and complete in Him. And I think that uh, it's important on balancing this reality. I I think if we focus too much on being in Christ, we may be so heavenly minded, we're of no earthly good. You've heard that phrase before. But I don't think we're too guilty of that. I think most of the time we're imbalanced on the other side of the spectrum uh, where, we, where we pay more attention to our physical place than our spiritual place. And that's why we get caught up in, into worldly and carnal things. We become materialistic and, and distracted with work, sports, family activities, and then we have little time for God. But there are two realities. We are physically here. We are spiritually there. Do you get it? Shake your hand with me. Okay. That's an incredible truth. We're going to talk more about that later. And by the way, everything Paul says is a setup in this introduction to counter the doctrinal delusion that's crept in to the church. So we've seen the place in Colossae, the physical place, in Christ, your spiritual place. Number three, let's look now at the people that received the letter. And there in verse two, it says, To the saints and faithful brethren. To the saints and faithful brethren. So saints is, is who they are positionally, and then uh, faithful brethren is who they are practically. But we'll, we'll talk about saints first. Paul addressed the recipients of this letter, saints, because that's who they were. Did you know that this is who we are in Christ? We're saints. Now, some of you feel uncomfortable when I say that because you're like, well, Dave, you don't really know me that well, so don't rush to judgment there, you know? There's some things that may change your mind. No, no, no. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're a saint. Why do we recoil when we hear that? Why why are we so hesitant to agree with that statement? I think it's because of the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. Because they don't have the same definition. By the way, a saint is not someone who has been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. But that's what's popular today. No, a saint is any sinner who's been saved by grace through faith. The Bible word is hagios. It means, it means separated. Among the Greeks, the, the word carried the idea of being dedicated to the gods. Uh, in the New Testament, it has to do with being consecrated to God. And in the form, plural form, it's used of believers, us. We're called saints. It's one of the universal designation of God's people. We are believers. We're brethren. We're disciples. We're Christians. We're saints. We're saints. Not because of what we have done. It's not due to our holiness or our own merit. No, it's because we've been washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb, as the song says. We've been saved by His holy act on the cross. We are being sanctified by His Holy Spirit who lives in us, and we will be 
glorified and made like him. Praise his holy name. We're saints. We're saints. Now, um, this is far different than the sainthood uh, designated by the Catholic Church. I want to kind of give you a quick summary of this ridiculousness, okay? Kind of did some little studying on how the Catholic Church determines if you're a saint, and uh, I don't think you guys would make it. I'll just kind of be honest with you. Uh, you better be thankful for God's Word because I think you'd fall short here. Remember, we are saints because of our Savior, not because of ourselves. Uh, but what does, what does uh, the Catholic Church say about sainthood? Well, uh, the process is quite involved and extensive. The per- prospective saint must live his or her life in such a virtuously noticeable way that over the span of hundreds of years, legends can grow about their lives. Okay? It, it helps if there will be some kind of a miracle attached to the person's reputation or they found in a monastery or died as a martyr. Um, but they at least have to die because Rome will not canonize you as a saint if you're still alive because you still may do something that embarrasses the church, right? And so after the person dies, they go to the mythical, and it's mythical, the mythical purgatory to pay for the residue of the sin that still clings to them. And after the mythical fires of purgatory purge them from their remaining sin, then they are beatified, still not a saint. Then the prospective saint has to, from the afterlife, perform at least two verifiable miracles. Posthumously, like after they die, they have to perform two verifiable miracles. A special court of inquiry is then formed, and they conduct an extensive investigation of the miraculous claims. The process can last for several hundred years, investigating these miracles. Once enough people are convinced that they are holy enough, the Pope convenes a special meeting, and he ceremonially recognizes them as a saint. You know why it takes so long? Because legends have to build about who this person was and what they did and the miracles they performed. We all think Bruce is a great guy now, but give it a couple hundred years. (laughs) Think of what people would save him then. John is okay right now, but man, if we had a 1,000 or 2,000 years to his reputation, uh, he's going to have a shiny halo above his head. It's miraculous. The Rangers were losing, and then I rubbed my little statue of John, and man, they, they won. And so once the Pope makes, a, makes them a saint officially and recognizes them as such, th- this means that the Catholics can now pray to him or her, which assumes that this man or woman now possesses the attributes of God. Because they, how else would they be able to hear and make sense of thousands of people in all parts of the world speaking a variety of different languages, praying to them at the same time? The Bible knows of no such saints. A saint is a sinner who has been saved by the grace of God. You're a saint. I'm a saint. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, raise raise your hand. Now look around. Look at somebody with their hand in the air and say, you're a saint. And and, And then say, now act like it. Right? Okay. All right. By the way, down through the centuries, Rome has accumulated over 2,500 saints that people can pray to. There's a thousand more in waiting. Here's some bad news. Back in 1959, Vatican II was convened and the Pope decided to purge some of the more popular saints from the roster, like St. Christopher, the patron saint of the traveler, or St. Valentine, the saint for lovers. They're gone. After that 
excruciating process, they're no longer saints. Think of the millions of people that prayed to St. Christopher while they were driving to the Grand Canyon. (laughs) Wasted time. Think of those single people that prayed to St. Valentine for that special someone. That's why she's not the right one, right? It's over. But in contrast, God makes saints of us all. The moment we accept Jesus as our Savior, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ. Saints. Next, he calls them faithful brethren. This is their practical designation. They're faithful brethren. While Paul had not personally met the Colossian believers, he heard of their faithfulness to Christ and to one another. Faithful means steadfast in affection or allegiance, to be firm in adherence to promises or discharge of duty. The Greek word is pistos, which carries the idea of being trustworthy, reliable, true to the original. So the reputation of the Colossian believers preceded them and served as evidence of their salvation. You've heard it said the proof is in the pudding. Well, in Christianity, the proof is in the fruit. The disciples asked Jesus, how will we know who is a true disciple? He said, by their fruits, you shall know them. It's pretty simple. Fig tree bears figs. Thorn tree bears thorns. If someone says they're a fig tree, but they're thorny and there's no figs, are they a fig tree? No. By their fruits, you shall know them. And so he heard of their fruits. And that brings us to number four, the proof. The proof. And that equals the proof, uh, the fruit in verses 4 through 8. He points to three proofs that should be present in a follower of Jesus. Faith, love, and hope. These three words are some of Paul's favorites. He uses them all the time. Faith, love, and hope. Do you know the Apostle John has three favorites as well? Love, light, and life. But that's a whole other series. Paul's favorite words, faith, love, and hope. So let's look at, the, at these three proofs that are fruits of the faithful. Number one, faith. So under proof, letter A, faith. And understand that it's not merely faith, for you can have faith in the wrong thing. No, it was their faith in Christ, right? I've heard about your faith in Christ. We all have faith. We exercise it every day. It's simple. It's repeating. All the time, we exercise faith. We use faith uh, when we go to a doctor and he... he uh, he tells us what we're sick with. We exercise our faith in the pharmacist that he prescribes the right med- that he gives us the right medicine that was prescribed. We exercise faith when we get in our car. We exercise faith in the manufacturer of the car. We exercise faith in the guy that's coming at us at 60 miles an hour, 18 inches away. We exercise faith when we walk into a building like this. We put our faith in the architect and the builder. That's not just going to crumble in on us. We exercise faith when we park it in a church pew. We exercise faith on a daily basis. So what will take simple, ordinary faith and making, make it saving faith? It's the object of our faith, isn't it? It's what we put our faith in. And so one of the proofs that they were faithful brothers, they had faith in Christ. Simple faith becomes saving faith when it becomes faith in Christ. And then that leads to love. Letter B, love. He said, we've heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints. And and I want you to underline the word all because it means all. Your love for all the saints. 
That includes Gertrude the Gossip, Bob the Backbiter, Bill the Bully Board Member, Sister Sally Snooty Pants. Love for all. They're saints too. Someone once said, to dwell in love with saints above, that will indeed be glory. To dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. It's hard sometimes. It's hard to love, isn't it? But we love because He first loved us. We love because God loves. It's who He is. It's what He does. Did you know that Jesus loved everyone? Didn't He? He loved everyone. He loved Pilate as much as He loved Peter. He loved Judas as much as He loved John. That's hard, but it's true. And when we place genuine faith in Jesus, we receive His love. It's who He is. It's what He does. It's the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's an evidence of our genuine faith. And then, let her see, it's hope. It's hope. He said, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you. Hope. A Christian's hope is not like the world's hope. No. It's an assured hope. It's, it is a solid and substantial hope because it's embedded in eternal truth. Our hope is in heaven and the redemption of our bodies and a reunion with our loved ones and our Lord. That's our hope. Do you have that hope tonight? Everybody seems to be losing hope in America. You know why? Because they hope in America. Don't hope in America. Hope in Jesus. America won't be here anymore. Hope in Jesus. He's our hope. Don't cheapen His grace. Don't cheapen His gift. Hope in Him. Hope. Romans 8, 18 through 25 is a great passage of Scripture that speaks of our hope. I don't have much time uh, to read it tonight, but it says that we're saved in this hope. The, 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 the adoption and the redemption of our bodies, we, we wait eagerly for it. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. The hope that we have in Christ is an eager, enduring, exciting expectation because we want our bodies to be redeemed. We want to be in our new home with Christ. It's a great hope. Finally, in Colossians uh, 4 through the rest of the, of the passage, we see Paul's prayer. And Paul, and we'll move quickly through this because our time is almost up. But this is where Paul begins to craft and set up uh, the, the best doctrinal passage in the book of Colossians. There's such great doctrine in the next uh, couple verses. Uh, but he says, starting uh, in verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit. There's fruit, the proof, as it is also among you since the day you heard knew the grace of God and truth. He talks about Epaphras, and then he talks about in verse 8, who declared to us your love in the Spirit. Now look at verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And he talks about Christ delivering us and sets up his doctrinal treaties that we'll look at next time. But let's quickly look at the prayer. The first thing we see about the prayer in verses 3 and 9 is it's constant. In verse 3 he says, praying always. In verse 9 he says, we do not cease to pray for you. Paul knew how to prevail in prayer. Probably only Jesus himself prayed more than Paul. Paul's prayer grew with every town he traveled to, every synagogue he preached in, every persecution, every hardship, every mile. He didn't gossip about people or ignore them. He prayed for them constantly, constantly. I pray always. I do not cease. How's your prayer life? The second thing we see under prayer is it was constructive. Look at the list of Paul's requests for the Colossian Christians. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might. He prayed for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Here's an idea. Instead of praying against someone's sin, pray for someone's Christ-likeness. Do you, pray the, do, you, do you pray these kind of prayers for people? Oh, man, please pray them for me. His prayer was constant, constructive, and finally his prayer was clear. Even in his prayer, Paul begins to teach the Colossian believers the great doctrinal truths that will refute the false teachers' corruption that Jesus is not enough. Look at verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. He has qualified us. Not will, not is, but he has qualified. It's done. You are qualified. You are saints. You are in Christ. To be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and the light, he has delivered us. It's done. Done deal from the power of darkness and conveyed us, past tense, into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. Just Jesus. It's enough. And then now after this incredible introduction, Paul prepares to dive into some of the greatest doctrinal teaching in all of the Bible. And we will take a look at that next Wednesday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it blows my mind that a letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to a specific church in a specific place dealing with specific problems speaks directly to our hearts today why is that because we are your church and we are here for the same reason that the church at Colossae existed because somebody told somebody else that you lived a sinless life died on the cross for their sins were buried rose again the third day and you can provide salvation and eternal life to anyone who would believe. Somebody said that. People believed it. They gathered together to learn more, and then we have a church, and here we sit. 2,000 years later, with this inspired letter, Lord, speaking directly into our hearts, and I pray that if anything was said tonight, Lord, that challenged hearts, I pray, Lord, that we'd do business with you. If we were convicted about our prayer life, if we were challenged about our faith, about our hope or lack thereof, Lord, I pray that we'd do business with you right now, and say, Lord, remind us of our spiritual place. We are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We have been redeemed. We stand forgiven. 
Lord, help us to rest in that because you are enough. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.